Welcome to episode 64 of the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I'm James Cohn. And we are recording in Mid-City, New Orleans, just outside Bayou St. John. On Labor Day. Labor Day, and there's a uh, tropical storm heading our way right now. <laughs> so yeah. Hopefully we can get this to the internet before uh, any power goes out or anything like that. Yeah, we'll see. How no one goes. seems really worried about it right now. <laughs> no, and we never are. Well, it's like a day ahead of time before you even know whether you should worry because once it gets to the gulf it can go any direction all right so we have like no idea what's happening with that i'm not sweating it i just hope i get off work and this of course is a movie podcast and not a weather podcast um (laughs) (laughs) we are a uh group of amateur film critics from new orleans and as such i should feel obligated to ask james what movies have you been watching lately i've been getting into these like liam neeson action I don't, like I kind of disregarded him after all the Taken movies, and there were all these ones released where it was like Taken on a train, Taken, taken on, on a plane. plane. But I uh, recently got around to watching The Commuter, which I think came out maybe this early this year. Yeah, yeah, I saw it around like January or February. I kind of dismissed it, like oh, it's gonna be another run of the mill, whatever. I actually I was very surprised at how fun it was. The like direction was kind of experimental with a lot of these shots that were moving throughout the train or going like through things and um, very like a lot of sweeping one take sort of shots. Remember the opening of the commuter is like him and his wife doing their like daily routine where he's taking the train back and forth to work in New York. I remember that being like kind of like experimentally edited as well. Yeah, it's like a montage of like just all these different days of him doing the same routine over and over. But it's a really fun you know, kind of mystery thriller and there's some, you know, some nice little twists in there and there's some really great action scenes and it's kind of made me intrigued about some of these other ones I missed out on, like Nonstop is another one where it's the same director as Commuter and Liam Neeson, but, you know, on a plane. Yeah, and in between those, he made that uh, movie, The Shallows, where, like, Blake Lively fights a shark. Mm-hmm. So he's in on a pretty hot streak of, like, movies that are not like necessarily respectable like they're kind of pure genre trash they've been getting like some sort of like unexpectedly respectable reviews from people yeah i mean commuter is like that but it's just a like really well-made genre film and i don't know liam neeson is like seems to be having this research not resurgence not like he ever went away but he's definitely like owning these more trashy thrillers and it like elevating the material yeah i remember like being introduced to him through like kinsey and like other indie dramas where he plays this sort of like sensitive soul and it seems like since taken took off he's been doing these more macho power fantasies for like suburban dads where like the dad has had enough and he's gonna right the wrongs through the pure strength of his fists which is kind of how um the commuter works out too, right? Like he has like a conspiracy theory that only he knows about and only he can solve it. Almost as if he's like Alex Jones with like bronze, you know? Yeah. And it ends up being this really elaborate conspiracy going to the highest levels of the government. But yeah, and it's really good. And I would like to maybe in the future do an episode on nonstop or one of these other movies. Cause all the ones I've seen so far are really, really good. So yeah, maybe an episode soon we could do nonstop. Yeah, in the minute I just rewatched, um, or I just saw for the first time, uh, Wes Craven's Red Eye, 
which is another oh, like yeah. bottle film like on a plane with Rachel, Rachel McAdams. McAdams. Yeah, mm-hmm. I liked it. It was fun. So I, I'd totally be interested in watching nonstop. Then that that has the creepy guy that plays the scarecrow and I don't yeah, know the actor's Killian name. Murphy. Yeah, I just remember him just being. He just looks fucking horrifying. I wrote this whole article recently that was just in a week. I watched three thrillers in a row where the villains' names are all these ridiculous puns. Killian Murphy in that movie, his name is Jack Ripner. It's supposed to sound like Jack the Ripper. Yeah. And the movie has this like weird kind of gender politics uh, thing between him and Rachel McAdams. I watched Angel Heart from the 80s where... Um, oh, I, I saw that a couple weeks ago, actually. It's good. But Robert De Niro's character's name is... Uh, shit, what is it? Louis Cipher. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it ends up being this like Lucifer stand-in. And then after those two, I went back and rewatched Ed Wood's Night of the Ghouls. Where this character that was written for Bella Lugosi before he died, and eventually played by someone else, uh, his name was Doctor Acula. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I went on this whole like kick about like ridiculous villain names. Wait, so real quick, because this was something I actually watched recently too. The Angel Heart. Oh, like, it's great. There was some like that sex scene towards it's the Mickey end. Rourke and Lisa Bonet having sex. And like blood rains from the ceiling, and yeah, man, they start having weird satanic visions because Louis Cipher is not always seems to be. First I mean, he's to exactly him. who he seems. To be. <laughs> the thing about that is like, it's kind of it reminded me of like, I guess like a Jacob's Ladder sort of thing where this guy's trying to figure out his own trauma. I've actually never seen Jacob's Ladder. Really, I probably should see that. You should see it. Yeah, I might make you watch that soon. I rewatched that within the past couple weeks, and it it holds up. It's a name that comes up often. Like, that title comes up, like, fairly often. I never actually get around to it. Yeah, I mean... I feel like Angel Heart comes up fairly often, at least in New Orleans circles, too, because, like... It's got all this voodoo... um, Yeah, like... Does it take place in New Orleans? mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's like a classic New York noir where the detective's sent down here to, like, find a lady Mm -hmm. and a guy supernatural mysteries evolve from there that aren't exactly noirish, but it's a lot like uh cat people in 1982 mm-hmm. and, um, uh, Zandali that like Nick Cage erotic thriller. We're like never saw that. new Orleans is just this like over the top, like sex pit of like, <laughs> you know, like right. nonstop hedonism. Uh, and I find, always find that stuff really adorable. Yeah. I was pleasantly surprised with, with angel heart. Me too. What else? I'm trying to think. Oh, well, something I saw in the theaters actually yesterday was Searching. Yeah, it's opening weekend for that right now. You know, I, we've gone back and forth about these computer perspective, technology, everything's from like a laptop. It's like user interface thrillers where like you're in the apps watching the story unfold as if you were like operating a laptop. So I was kind of excited for this one because John Cho, I saw him... In Columbus. Yeah, I haven't I was, seen that yet. I know he was really good in that. I, I was really blown away by that. And I was like, oh, wow, he's an actual, like, really good dramatic actor. And I was so disappointed by that. Like, I thought it was going to be, and I guess it kind of lived up to this. I knew it was going to be a more mainstream, one of the, like, Unfriended or that sort of thing. Or The Den is another example. A more mainstream version. But, like, it just did not do it. For me, I'm um, on the same page. I did not you saw like it too, searching. Right? Yeah, it really felt like a lifetime movie version of it. But like every chance it had, where it could have done something thrilling or maybe a little dark or whatever, it took 
kind of the easy road and the twist at the end is totally like kind of whatever and it cheats its ass off with the premise like with security footage and like cnn footage um also just usually in these thrillers the camera is the laptop perspective yeah so you just sort of watch the story play out as windows pop up and minimize um but in searching the camera zooms in to like direct your eye so like instead of seeing a full screen as if you were watching google in real time yeah it zooms into the search bar and you see like the text like almost fill the screen almost as if it's like trying to make sure everyone who's like hard of seeing can catch up Whereas, like, in some of these other ones, like Unfriended, you have multiple screens. Like, you have the Snapchat going on, and they're on Facebook, and you kind of have to play detective as you're watching. And in this one, it just sort of leads you uh, by the hand through everything, and it kind of takes the whole fun out of the genre. So I was, like, very disappointed. Uh, I felt like it really dropped the ball for me. that cowardice of, like trusting your audience to follow what you're trying to say too is also reflected in the thriller beats they keep proposing these potential dangers of what john cho's missing daughter could be up to and it's like oh maybe she's camgirling maybe she's having an affair with an older man who's like close to the family or maybe she's dealing with this like drug dealer or like running away and every time they introduce a new threat it's completely defanged like within two or three minutes. Right. Uh, and it, it keeps like reassuring you both that the kids are all right and that the internet's not all evil, which I'm a huge fan of this technophobic genre more than most people even are. But this didn't feel technophobic. Not at all. Especially the first 15 minutes. I found the music to be, it's just really whimsical like very positive spin almost like an advertisement for like windows or something right or for like sharing your memories online it's going through all these videos he made of his daughter and this really happy musing like oh see like how great social media can be to preserve your memories and all this so it totally lost the whole point of these movies the technophobia yeah I want them to prey on my misunderstanding and like half understanding of how the internet works. Like we talked about unfriended dark web on this show mm-hmm. recently, that movie like sort of preys on your like lack of understanding of like what is actually happening on the deep web. Uh, and is like sort of exploiting your fears of like the unknown on the mm-hmm. internet. And this film is like very safe with that stuff where it should be like making you feel scared about what could possibly happen on the internet. But instead it's sort of like holding your hand and like letting you know, actually everything's going to be all right. And we're going to walk you through this and you'll be fine. Uh, I wasn't surprised to learn that the director used to work for Google and like left his job at Google to make this movie. That was like, Oh, well that makes total sense. It seems like a tech bro, like reassuring audiences that everything's going to be okay. Yeah, It's like very optimistic about the technology. It reminded me a lot of This Is Us, which I've actually never seen, but like just from the advertisements and seeing uh, the creative team from that show advertising other movies and television shows they're working on. Like it's got this like melodramatic, like you said, lifetime movie kind of like corniness to it. Like it reminds me of like, this is like unfriended for like really corny suburban parents. Yeah, like soccer moms, Uh, (laughs) especially the way it ends. I just like was so done by that point. Yeah, it's got the kid gloves on. Like it's like it's protecting you from any potential danger up to the end where like all the stakes of the movie 
are just completely like padded right uh, so that you can't hurt yourself by watching it yeah well anyway, well now that we shat all over <laughs> i do searching. feel a little bad because it's kind of like a cheap thriller and it's gimmicky and that's the kind of thing i want to like champion usually and no it's it's like well acted and all that i mean i i wouldn't say it's horrible but i had really high hopes i haven't written a review yet but i would probably give it like two and a half stars like almost liked it but not quite yeah, of. I was on a like grade scale. I'd give it like a C plus. Yeah, exactly. Maybe. Yeah, middle of the road. But well, anyway, what um what have you been watching? Um, well, today we're actually talking about uh, a lot of like films I saw at like film festivals and like older repertory stuff. So I wanted to single out what Broad Theater has been doing recently. Mm-hmm. A lot of the movies we're gonna be talking about later is stuff we saw at Britannia Theater, which is like the oldest single screen theater in Louisiana. Um, and Broad is probably the newest, uh, like, small indie theater. And they've been doing a really good job of, like, mixing older repertory, like, 4K restorations of lost films along with, like, their new stuff, you know? And I saw a couple older movies, both from 1971, in the last week on the big screen at Broad that I thought were interesting. Uh, one was called A Touch of Zen. Did you see the ads for that? I did. That's, like, the samurai movie. Yeah, I saw yeah. the preview for that. Uh, it's a wuxia film, which is like a specific type of like historical martial arts cinema popularized in America through um, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon and Hero. You remember when those came out in like the early 2000s? Yeah. So is it like kind of gravity defying um, like samurai? Yeah. Basically? Uh, no, like samurai armor or anything. But yeah, it's like martial arts masters who've like sort of transcended physics and like learned how to hop along the trees as they like fight each other cool uh this was a three and a half hour wuxia epic from a director named king who who is sort of famous for doing these like chinese uh historical epics gotta say i've never been a big fan of this genre so this was sort of like a leap of faith on my part like okay i'm gonna go see this 4k digital restoration of this movie i'm not that interested in and if this doesn't do it for me then i'm not into the genre you kind of know for sure yeah actually my friend michelle from the internet here's michelle kinzer she does reviews for the site uh spoiler free movie sleuth she i think operates out of detroit uh she is a huge fan of this stuff and after i said i was a little cold on a touch of zen she was like oh you need to check out these other like campier films Mm -hmm. uh and like more ridiculous versions of this because she thinks that i would be more into them which sounds accurate because i'm a trash person uh this was a little slow and patient and like letting the sort of campier elements come as they did like it wasn't like trying to entertain you at every second Um, and for a three and a half hour movie on a thursday night you would kind of expect that towards the end is when you would sort of like lose faith and like sort of like fade away Mm -hmm. watching it early on in the first hour is when i was a little cold like the first hour of the film is this exposition about this artist who's living with his mother and uh, not marrying and has like no really ambitions. And she wants him to become this like government worker, like a bureaucrat, which is the kind of job I have to be fully honest. Um, (laughs) And uh, he like refuses to grow up and like, you know, get a real job instead wants to paint portraits all day. And he ends up painting this portrait for this mysterious man who comes to their small town and is obviously seeking out other people and is like trying to gather information about any newcomers who might be around. There's a woman nearby who is a fugitive and living in this abandoned temple. And it turns out that she is a martial arts expert. 
and can fight off entire armies by herself. But she's, like, extremely outnumbered. Mm -hmm. So as the Emperor closes in on her for being, like, this political fugitive, she grows this sort of, like, small militia by her own volition of, like, other people who are really good at martial arts and are able to fight off, like, an entire empire. Uh, So a lot of the movie is this bumbling artist is the main character, and he's, like, a complete loser. And this woman that he falls in love with who's living in this, like, abandoned temple protects him and just kicks the ass out of everyone who, like, tries to attack them. And what eventually develops after that first hour where I was, like, struggling to stay awake is this series of, like, great set pieces. The wuxia stuff of, like, people, like, climbing among trees and, like, hopping over buildings. Mm -hmm. That's all there. There's also these, like, really weird pranks where, like, they try to convince the emperor's army that the temple is actually haunted. So they have all these, like, mannequins posing as ghosts and things like that. Hmm. And uh, there's a lot of, like, jokey humor. And uh, the martial arts are really fun to watch, even if the story's a little slow and a little too patient. And then at the end, there's this fight between the fugitives and the government where these, like, Buddhist monks step in and help out the fugitives. And when they hit people really hard in the center of their head, they start, like, hallucinating uh, and sort of, like, achieve enlightenment through, like, their brains falling apart, pretty much. (laughs) Uh, And that stuff's really beautiful to watch on the screen, too. So, I don't know. Ultimately, it's, like, a movie I'm glad I watched. It's not something that, like, I feel, like, made me more of a fan of a genre I'm already a little lukewarm on. Mm -hmm. But uh, I just thought it was really cool to, like, have that opportunity to watch that, like, in the theater. Well, I'm glad to hear that it has some humor to it too because that that was one thing that didn't really come across in the trailer where it seemed like a really self-serious like criterion collection like four hour epic kind of thing that's a lot to ask three and a half hours out of like a modern audience i think for a single picture with no intermission Mm. and it did feel like three and a half hours like (laughs) that time did not go by quickly uh anytime i try to watch like seven samurai or any of those like three and a half hour movies man it really takes some some effort the last i felt that was with the tarkovsky movies yeah those well because they purposely move so slow too this has a lot more like straightforward entertainment value i think if you're gonna watch these like martial arts epics and especially if you just like the idea of like this female warrior protecting this like damsel in distressed male artist who like can't protect himself yeah I i like that flipping of the gender roles yeah the movie doesn't have like a very satisfying narrative for a film that's that long like it feels like a page torn out of a much longer story uh it seems kind of episodic too yeah almost like it's like part of a series but it's it's just this one isolated film Hmm. i don't regret seeing it and i do think that it's important to watch stuff like that in the theater where like if you're at your house it's so easy for your mind to wander and for like you to like look at your phone or something but when you're sort of like stop and pick something else yeah when you're like trapped in the theater isolated with no distractions like watching this like thing unfold on the screen it's probably the most attention i ever would have paid to the film and i really like that broad like is willing to sacrifice the screen where they could be playing like ant-man and the wasp for like an eighth week or something another movie from 1971 that played at broad recently in restoration was this movie the last movie uh directed by dennis hopper oh man i I didn't know what to make. Like, what is it? It seems like a meta narrative, right? It's like the making of a Western. Yeah. Is that so right? what happened after Easy Rider is Dennis Hopper was like the hottest ticket in New Hollywood. Like he could do no wrong. He turns these like indie movies that no one should pay attention to into like gold. It's pretty much how like Hollywood looked at him. 
And Universal Pictures gave him a million dollars to make whatever he wanted. Uh, and he took the million dollars to Peru to make this movie about making movies. The director, Sam Fuller, is in the film pretty much playing himself. And his director... Wait, wait, Sam, Sam Fuller. Do you know what else he's done? That name actually rings uh, a bell for me, but... I can't recall I can't the title of the film, but he made one about a mental institution. It's supposed to be really good. Was it uh, Shock Corridor? Shock Corridor. Okay, yeah. yeah I just It took me a while, but... Yeah, that that was really good. I haven't seen uh, that, but uh, Mark reviewed it for the website recently. We gave he a, liked it. Yeah, glowing review. Yeah, it's awesome. Well, that that's good to know. I, so Sam Fuller's like in the film directing this like western called Billy the Kid. It's supposed to look like it's in like Texas, uh, Mexico kind of area, but so it's, it's like actually a, in Peru. So there's like a fake stage. Yeah, they're like build like a fake little saloon town for this like cool. Billy the Kid epic to be filmed. And on the set, Dennis Hopper is playing this, like, stunt coordinator who, like, does, like, stuntman work. And he also, like, wrangles horses for the production and stuff. And on the production, a another stuntman dies through, like, a stunt gone wrong. And he's, like, a local. After the film wraps up, Billy the Kid leaves town. And the locals pick up a script that Sam Fuller left behind and start recreating Billy the Kid a second time. Except this time... They're filming through these like fake cameras that they made out of like bamboo sticks and like these like they have like a fake boom mic and a fake like light system, just all made out of bamboo, and they almost become these like religious objects where like they're sort of like forming these rituals around this like film that left, and the violence that they're filming quote unquote through this like fake equipment is not faked at all, and they're like punching each other and like shooting guns, and Dennis Hopper who stayed behind after the Hollywood system left is like the target of their violence. What? <laughs> They're like actually shooting guns at him and stuff. Dude, that sounds so cool. And he's trying to convince them like, no, this stuff isn't real. They were just like playing pretend and they're just not really buying it. And it becomes almost this like religious festival around this, uh, around this like Hollywood industry that left Peru. And meanwhile, he's also keeping up a relationship with a local sex worker and he becomes sort of a sex worker himself for this like wealthy woman whose husband owns a factory in town. It's a really interesting look at like exploitation in the movie industry, especially for films that like leave America and sort of like pilfer these like other countries for mm -hmm. their locations and their like cheap film shoots uh, and like exploit the people and then leave them behind after the movie leaves, you know? And the interesting thing about the movie is that after Hopper completed the film, which should have been a very short shoot, but it took him two years to get an edit together because he was so fucked up on alcohol and hard drugs. Uh, he completed like a sort of straightforward, traditional version of the narrative and submitted it to the studio. And his friend slash mentor, Alejandro Hodorowski, made fun of him for making a straightforward film with creative freedom to do whatever he wanted. Hmm. So he rejected the original cut and destroyed it. And then redid an edit that makes no goddamn sense. And it's this sort of like out of order, emotional storytelling, Malikian, like very Malik kind of edit where it's very hard to follow the story I just gave you in any sort of linear sense. That doesn't really become clear until very late in the film. Hmm. And you're sort of piecing these like jigsaw pieces that have been like spread across the editing room table together. And I loved this way more than I thought I would. It's so good. It, well, when I saw the trailer, I just didn't know what to make of it. Like, and like hearing you describe, it's like, is this a straightforward movie? Is it the making of a making of 
the film? Is it a documentary? Is, That's like, a good question. <laughs> I, I don't have the answer to. Yeah. It's like a, uh, it plays to me just spitballing here. Cause I don't have a lot of answers. <laughs> it plays to me like Dennis Hopper had all this money to go to Peru and film whatever he wanted. And like halfway through the production realized that what he was doing with this evil, like imperialist colonialist act that was like ruining the lives of everyone around him. And then he sort of like self-sabotaged his career after the fact hmm. and was like, Oh, movies are terrible and they're like ruining the world. And I need to get out of this so badly. Cause it's like bad for my heart and my mind. And it did ruin his career for like a good decade. He like wasn't able to get work uh, for a very long time after this bomb. So is there like, can you see the original cut anywhere? You said he destroyed destroyed it. Yeah. You Hmm. can sort of piece together what it might look like if you were going to make a linear version of the movie. But the sort of idea of it is it's breaking down artifice. So like it's giving you this sort of behind the scenes version of like what a production of a Western might look like. And then it's showing you the fake cameras instead of the real cameras, which are like the religious, religious objects. Yeah. And then that stuff starts breaking down to the point where it's hard to tell what's them fake filming the Western and what's them fake filming the last movie. And like they're showing you cuts and excerpts of like Hopper sort of like talking shit between takes. And you can't really tell what's supposed to supposedly staged for the last movie, which is what you're watching, and staged for Billy the Kid, which is the movie that is within the movie. It's like I, this weird jumble. I love that, dude. It, it's I need psychedelic. To see that. It's if you like Hodorowski and Malik. Well, Malik less, but Drodowski, yeah. I feel similar about both of them. Like I like the idea behind it, and I like the. But actually, watching it was kind of exhausting. Yeah, and I didn't feel that with this. I like it felt like a good version of like the, those kinds of movies. I'm glad Jordeski could kind of push Hopper to go a little more off the edge. Yeah, there's like almost a holy mountain feel to this where it's like for its own sake and like imagery because it's interesting, not because it means anything thematically. But I feel like here I can make a sort of purposeful intent behind each decision the way that I struggle with more with like Jodorowsky's films. Like I can see what he was trying to do about like breaking down artifice and like self-criticizing and self-flagellating over like Hollywood's ills and these foreign countries. I can kind of see a purpose behind each decision here where like with Hordorowski, it's like, Oh, you did that because the image is beautiful. Not because it means anything. Well, you know, that's interesting too. Before we started taping, we were talking about Werner Herzog. That's one thing I've always wondered with him. Like he was always about going to these far off countries to film on location and use like local natives to give a more authentic Vibin, you always kind of have to wonder, kind of like you were talking about in this, like you have a foreigner coming in and kind of exploiting people for their authenticity and then getting the shots you need and then leaving. And then paying them less than scale than you would pay on like American workers. No, that that sounds so good, man. Because yeah. I, I even, during the trailer, I thought like, this seems kind of like a El Topo, like a psychedelic uh, fragmented sort of Western. And, and now that you've talked about it, like I'm so on board. Yeah. You have to and see it. it. Yeah. And it's available. Uh, I, I don't know how I never heard of it. Cause it seems such in that wheelhouse of like Drodowski and the psychedelic filmmakers of the seventies. Yeah. I think it just had a very long road to like cult status. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was sort of like deemed as like an interesting failure. I think when it first came out and it's just been sort of like slowly, 
given like the the treatment where it could get like a 4k restoration and a second theatrical run cool and i thought it was cool that broad like put that on like there's no way they made like a lot of money off of that uh and it's kind of cool that they like sacrificed one of their four screens to like this sort of like weird experiment hell yeah um and today we're talking about a film fest that um we saw at britannia like late july uh cc and i went to see filmtopia at britannia theater we didn't see a lot of the newer movies that were playing there instead we went and saw a bunch of the kubrick related stuff talking about like auteurs who were like uh famously (laughs) self-indulgent kubrick is definitely up there and we also watched one olivia yasayas film which actually you came to that with me uh yeah cold water so i really enjoyed yeah so you can hear me and cc discussing those films later in this episode and before we get to that, you and I are going to discuss a movie I saw at Britannia at another film festival earlier this year. So this is like a very repertory cinema kind of episode. And all that's coming up to you right, right now. now. <laughs> Identical twins start out as a bizarre accident. As with the rest of us, when sperm meets egg, an individual is formed. But then something remarkable happens. The single developing embryo splits to form two identical people. So it's not surprising, since they started out as one person, that they're so much alike. For our movie of the minute, which is where we bounce back and forth recommending films to each other, I made James watch a film that I saw at French Film Fest at Britannia earlier this year. Later in the episode, you'll hear Cece and I talk about Filmtopia, which was a film fest that was entirely contained to the one screen at Britannia Theatre. Uh, and that's their sort of replacement for this older film fest that they used to have. And early in the year, they also have a film fest that's only there and it's sponsored by New Orleans Film Society. Uh, French Film Fest is like one single week at Britannia, and it's all French language films, uh, old and new. Early in the year, February, I saw this movie Double Lover, which was the closing film of the night. And it was my favorite movie at the festival and has since remained my favorite movie of the year. Uh, and I keep talking about it over and over again. If you want to hear me and CC talk about the entire French Film Fest experience, um, episode 56, she and I go in at every movie we saw that festival. And you can already hear me gushing about Double Lover on that episode because I loved it so much. So this was released in 2017? No, it's right? this year. Oh, it is this year. Yeah, okay. it, it premiered at Cannes in 2017 in France, but didn't premiere in the U.S. until 2018. Um, actually, Valentine's Day weekend, the same weekend as uh, Fifty Shades Freed. Uh, so if you a lot of if you read a lot of like American reviews of Double Lover, they'll be sort of paired with Fifty Shades Freed. Like, oh, you think that Fifty Shades is kinky, but Double Lover is actually kinky. Yeah, like, it makes Fifty Shades look so vanilla. In retrospect, the two movies really don't have a lot to do with each other, other than that they're both erotic thrillers and they both had like a similar valentine's day like jokey release date yeah maybe like a slightly s&m well a double lover's not necessarily s&m but the sexual undertones are slightly dark i think they're both movies that deal a lot with um negotiation of power power dynamics, dynamics in the bedroom yeah. for sure uh double lover is a movie that although doesn't have a lot to do with 50 shades does have a lot to do with erotic thrillers from the past um particularly the works of david cronenberg brian de palma and like very kinky giallo films from the 70s i think that would be like the three i would group it in with 
especially David Cronenberg's Dead Ringers, in which two gynecologists, mm-hmm. uh, torturers, um, who are twins, uh, fall in love with the same woman. Yeah, I think from a thematic standpoint, it's similar to Dead Ringers. And I think from a technical standpoint, it's De Palma. A lot like Blowout, um, and also a lot like uh, Sisters, which uh, splits the screen in half and doubles imagery. And Double Lover, an ex-fashion model, has a pain in her stomach that she can't get doctors to take seriously or to diagnose with any sort of like medical diagnosis. They keep stress or whatever, yeah. She keeps insisting, like, my stomach hurts. And they're like, oh, that's psychosomatic. There's nothing actually wrong with you. You're just sort of making this up. Eventually, she sort of gives in after going to all these different doctors, and she tries a psychiatrist. Very early in the film, you see her sort of spilling out her life to this sort of soft, kind psychiatrist gentleman who's, like, listening to her speak at length. And it sort of, like, eroticizes listening. She's sort of, like, spilling her heart out, and this guy's, like, very interested in every syllable that comes out of her mouth. Yeah, but but doesn't, like talk over her and he is really just like an active listener yeah he like falls in love with her through her just explaining who she is story and their psychiatrist patient relationship ends uh because they both fall in love like he falls in love through listening to her and that's like eroticized in this like kind of goofy way they move in and um are sort of like on their way to getting married in like this really nice paris apartment um, and she finds out that he's hiding a secret twin who's also a psychiatrist. Uh, she starts seeing this other twin psychiatrist behind his back to figure out why he would be hiding this. And this guy is way more aggressive, cuts her off, tells her the session's over, give me my money. He's like negging her uh, yeah. in the uh, the art of persuasion lingo. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea sort of is this really outdated psychobabble from what you would see from like a 90s erotic thriller where one twin is dominant and one is submissive and the evil twin is the dominant one and the good twin is the submissive one. And she kind of goes back and forth. Between, like, I think she even has a line in there when I'm with you and kind of thinking about him and vice versa. So they're kind of two sides of the same coin. Where the De Palma influence comes in is in the mirrored imagery a lot of split screens like when she's talking and someone's listening the camera has that split diopter where they're both in focus and in the foreground a lot of like mirrors like literally mirrored imagery oh that one scene where she's like walking and there's a mirror of maybe five or six images of her and as she's walking it all converges into one uh there's a lot of beautiful and again like de palma like shots that uh, are very cool. Yeah, you get the idea very early on. You're like, oh, they're mirroring stuff because there's like twins and it's a twin movie and it's mirrors. And then uh, the director Ozon sort of pushes that gimmick to the point where it's like so fucking ridiculous. And like by the climax of the film where there's like a big showdown between the two brothers and her because she's like holding this sexual affair between the two of them. Uh, it almost turns into like a funhouse, like Hall of Mirrors um, effect, where it's just like everything's mirrored so much. There's like an infinite amount of yeah, images. Yeah, you don't know who is who, and yeah, completely ridiculous, honestly. And like most reviews I've read from the film are like, oh, this is retread. It's tripe. It's sort of been done before. It's over the top. It's too on the nose. 
in the theater when I saw it in February, I was watching it with this like French film fest audience who are like very stuffy old people usually. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's kind of the Britannia's like, you know, target demographic. Right. It's like people in their like sixties or seventies would just go see anything that seems artistically important. And Did anybody walk out? No, nobody walked out, which is what I expected. Because the sexual imagery is like really over the top, really graphic. From the very beginning. Yeah. Literally very first or second shot. Well, yeah, the first shot you see is of this ex-supermodel who's the main protagonist getting her hair cut uh, drastically from like, you know, kind of in a Rosemary's Baby way, like getting all her hair cut off. Uh, and then the second shot you see is a very up-close gynecological exam where you don't really realize what you're looking at until the forceps close and you're like, oh, I'm inside this woman's vulva. Uh, Which in this like allusion to like George Batali, I don't know if you read George Bataille, the story of the eye. Yeah, story of the eye. And then that kind of the vagina turns into her her eye, which is great. God, I'm so glad you picked up on that reference because yeah, George Bataille is like undeniable. If you've ever read it, like the image of an eyeball inside a vagina is like the first thought that you're giving that's how i i knew from that shot i was like down with this movie and the movie does have a sort of empty shock value thing too right like it shows someone giving you giving like red wings and there's Mm -hmm. some pegging in the film there's some there's some negging in the film uh some very like sadomasochist like we said earlier like negotiation of power dynamics in the bedroom but i think on top of that and like on top of the psychobabble about like dominant and submissive twins there's actually some like sort of nuanced discussion of power dynamics in regular relationships and like there's this woman at the center who has this pain in her stomach and none of the men around her take her seriously and like the medical community has sort of like isolated her and herself where she's just like made to feel crazy that nothing's actually wrong with her Mm -hmm. and Throughout the film, you can't trust her as a narrator and you can't trust the point of view of the feature. But the movie's telling you the answer to the mystery throughout. It's like, okay, what if this is what's happening to you? And like the the weird gross out imagery it's showing is sort of revealed in the last act. Like actually there is a solid explanation to like why you're losing your mind and like what's wrong with your body. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, it's almost like you're inside her brain and you're revealing to yourself what's actually wrong with you. I thought I had maybe, because I saw this early in the year, had sort of, like, overhyped it in my mind. Like, because, you know, in February, I was like, this is the craziest movie I've seen so far this year. It's only been two months. And I've just been sort of dwelling on it and rethinking about it. It came up for, like, 5 or $8 on sale for Blu-ray, which is about the same amount you'd pay to, like, rent it. So I bought a copy recently to, like, sort of reassure myself, like, mm-hmm. this actually is still my favorite film of the year. And I'm not just being stubborn. Like, it's... The exact match of, like, high art and, like, low genre trash that I love. So I'm just curious what you think about it generally, like, having seen it for the first time. Well, first of all, like, I love French cinema. And I'm I'm with you. You know, we have similar tastes in that. I love the high art stuff. But I think it's best when it's mixed with, like, a trashier kind of genre film. And then also the, like, very obvious influences of some of my favorite directors like De Palma and also this kind of like I thought there was this deeper message that really appealed to me about identity and how out of our partners or our lovers we kind of want opposing things from them you know like on the one hand you know she's sort of drawn to the one brother who's very kind and 
a good listener and maybe slightly boring, but like a good partner. And then this more aggressive alpha male type. And she talks about how when she's with one, she kind of wants the other. And it's, you know, sort of like when you're in a relationship, you're kind of thinking what else is out there. Like, and then when you get that, then you realize like, no, I missed the thing I had before. And just, and also inside of us too, these dueling identities. And that's a lot of what the movie explores is like inside of us, we have the good and the bad. And that and, becomes very literal towards the end. Right. And that's what I love to at the end is it becomes like a physical manifestation of these dueling identities. So, so again, like it was thematically rich. It was beautifully artfully shot. There, a lot of it takes place in like a museum so you get these really beautiful artsy shots of the exhibitions and it just like checked all the boxes for me and and it, and it actually did like have a profound sort of message for me too it wasn't just because it was shocking like it was saying something i think kind of important about identity and how we have to juggle conflicting identities both in the people we love and also inside of us yeah, I think I think a lot of people get hung up on like the twin psychology of the film, uh, where they're almost taking it literally in this like psychobabble way, between like the dominant side and the submissive side. And I do think that stuff's very outdated. Uh, this movie was based off a of Joyce Carol Oates uh, novella that is like a straightforward thriller. I don't know if you know her at all, but she like writes a lot of academic fiction, and she's like one of the more prolific fictional writers around. So that half of what she writes is this like really serious sort of academic stuff. And then she also writes a bunch of genre trash. Um, and this is under her genre trash pen name. I can't remember the pseudonym off the top of my head. It's like Rosamund Smith or something like that. And this is Joyce Keller Oates sort of like indulging in these like tropes and these like misunderstandings, these sort of outdated understandings of twin psychology mm-hmm. and sort of pushing that to its most extreme where to me it stops being about like twins and sort of about how when you're in a relationship and you're coupled, you have this sort of like negotiation between you where you become twins. Uh, mm-hmm. Like you're no longer two separate people. You're sort of like extensions of each other and you have to negotiate in which situations is one person on top and the other person on top uh, to put it like as simply as I can. Right. Uh, where that is, it's played out in the film, like kinky sex kind of way where like one gets to be dominant versus the other depending on the sexual encounter but it has this sort of like larger implication about like just relationship dynamics in general yeah and i think the kind of danger of that and which again like kind of physically happens in the movie is you could devour each other or the other partner so it's like this balancing act we don't want to completely dominate or devour and it's kind of a give and take thing yeah really really interesting stuff And I think a lot of people, too, dismiss erotic thrillers in general because it's, like, super uncomfortable to watch with a crowd. Especially this movie, it goes so over the top with the sexuality and gets so explicit that it's, like, actually genuinely erotic at moments in a place that's, like, uncomfortable. Mm. Especially if you're watching it with strangers in the theater. Like, everyone gets deathly quiet. (laughs) Right. Well, and you know, a a good example of that is, like, there's a scene about halfway through that mirrors this gynecological exam, but instead it's going into the main character's throat. And so it's like the larynx, like 
the passageway. It's like during the moment of orgasm too. Right. And it, it does kind of just look like inside of a vagina again. So kind of making this thing that's not even really sexual, but because of the whole kind of vibe of the film, it's like sexualizing a thing that's not even sexual, which I think is like a beautiful thing to accomplish. Like even the inside of a throat can be sexy I think people are reluctant. And that is uncomfortable. I think people are reluctant to admit that they've like sort of succumbed to those sort of like titillation moments. I think that there's like a sort of embarrassment with like lauding this kind of stuff. Where like I really like, especially with Cronenberg, you know, stuff like Crash or Dead Ringers or Videodrome even. It's like one of my favorite movies. Hmm. It's like tapping into your like sexual id and like stuff that you want to see on screen and then making it this sort of like evil thing that you can't escape. Uh, I think experiencing that with like a community where you're not like alone watching it on VHS has a completely different experience. It's not right for me to judge other people who don't like this movie to say that like they didn't like it because of this. But I do think there's a sort of disconnect where it's like, I don't want to admit that that worked for me and I'm just yeah. going to call it silly. Well, well, what's funny is I had a kind of a different viewing experience because I borrowed the Blu-ray from you and I watched it with my girlfriend. And so during a lot of these things, we just kind of looked over <laughs> at each other and kind of just like we knew what the other person was thinking. Like, damn, this is like it's kind of hot. Yeah, it's kind of hot. Oh man, it's getting <laughs> a little steamy in here. But I could definitely imagine seeing it in a theater with strangers. Yeah, how that would be a little uncomfortable. And I think that if you have people who are game and are like willing to succumb to that, it puts you in this like very vulnerable state. Like, it's tapping into your, like, sexual id and, like, sort of grabbing you from that in. And then once you're there, you're not above the material anymore. Like, even though it's cheesy and it's very derivative of other works, you're sort of, like, under its spell. Mm. And then towards the end, it stops being this, like, sexual erotic thriller and becomes this more, like, surreal nightmare. And goes to, like, more traditional horror beats, I would say, in the last third act. Yeah, especially... There's kind of this subplot of where she goes to visit a girl that interacted with the the, the twins previously. And she's like in a really bad physical state. And there's a moment where she's looking at her and it's like her face. So it's like her doppelganger kind of. But then the mother of her in a later scene is actually like her mother, too. Did you catch that? Yeah. Like, so it's this weird, like, is this her other Just more mirroring, or? but it becomes, like, less, like, in the space mirroring and more, like, mirroring other people's faces. Almost like face swap apps or something. There's yeah. an eeriness to that. But it's kind of like you were saying, that hall of mirrors thing where it's, like, mirrors looking at mirrors and then it becomes so surreal and you don't even know what's happening. And I would say the last, like, five beats of the film, the last, like, ten minutes are sort of hinged on these like jump scares which are like very traditional horror Mm -hmm. stuff i will say that's probably out of the stuff that like sort of slipped slightly for me from like the big screen to watching it at home was the jump scares at the end have this sort of like i don't want to give too much away but it's like someone beating on a glass sort of like lunging after you and like leaving a thud like Mm -hmm. in the physical world and in the theater that like sort of like heavy bass sound of like someone like thudding against a physical object 
you sort of feel that in your chest, you know? Yeah. Uh, whereas at home, it just seems like a more like, you know, regular, almost like a zombie attack. I mean, I, it still, it still got me. Okay, good. I, and I watched it at home. It might be more because I knew it was coming too. But yeah, it gets very traditional horror, I would say, in the last like 15, 20 minutes. But I will say, I think, I agree, it it goes more into traditional horror towards the, the end. But I think the the very end, the way, like literally the final scene kind of brings it back to this more ambiguous, open-ended thing where it kind of makes you, again, like kind of rethink everything you saw before. In, it it in undoes a resolution. Way. Uh, mm-hmm. There is a resolution before that, and it sort of yeah. undoes it. It makes it ambiguous, like, after the fact. Uh, and it also sort of ends on this, like, sort of dark joke, I think, uh, mm-hmm. with the sound effect. And I think the whole movie has a sort of tongue-in-cheek attitude to it. If you watched on the uh, Blu-ray I bought, there's an interview at the Quad in New York uh, where an interviewer is asking Ozan why he made this movie in the first place. And he said his last film, France, which played the last French film fest, mm-hmm. um, that movie got really good critical high scores saying like, oh, Ozan's finally grown up. After years of making these sort of like trashy dramas and like eroticized narratives, he's grown up and become like a really respectable director. And he's like, fuck that. Yeah, with Double Lover, he's like, no, I'm still a young punk and I'm I'm a prankster and I'm going to like make the trashiest movie you've seen all year. Yeah, like some of the negative reviews I read, it seemed like they wanted it to either be this... Uh, we were talking about it's a mixture of the high art and the trashy, maybe like Cinemax sort of thing. And it, a lot of the negative reviews I read were like, ah, oh, just pick one. Like, if you're going to be this erotic sex romp thing, then just be that. Don't try to add in this philosophical musing sort of thing. But I don't, it's so weird because I feel like they missed why it works. That's why it works is because it's perfectly mixing high and the low. And kind of transcends both of those yeah. things. Like even early on before you get the George Bataille reference with the uh, eyeball inside of the vagina. The first shot of the film is the model getting her hair cut in like a professional environment. Even from there, it feels like a Vogue fashion shoot. It has a sort of like high art fashion. Well, I um, think a lot of that to has it. to do with the actress too. She just she looks like a model. Looks like a model. She just has beautiful facial features and she's like extraordinarily skinny as well uh, mm-hmm. which fits in with the medical mystery of the film too where it's like her body's sort of terrorizing her uh, and no one yeah. will tell her that yeah, her insides wrong. are literally like they're trying to bust out of yeah. her but I think that I am drawn to that more than most people are like I want something to be ridiculous and trashy but I want it to look really nice uh, well, the Neon he, Demon was another film that was like my favorite film of that year. That's exactly what I was going to bring. I was like the aesthetics with the kind of violent, gory kind of stuff. Yeah, it was very reminiscent of Neon Demon. I know you were really high on that yeah, one. Yeah, and it's like high art fashion photography mixed with like this very low genre trash. And it gets more and more closer to a traditional horror payoff in the last 10 minutes. I will say, though, like I know you were higher on neon demon than i was i think why i like this one a lot more is because i felt like there was more substance to it where neon demon felt all like glossy exterior and there was a little bit of meaning and truth underneath but this one i don't know this one just like stimulated me more intellectually 
the Neon Demon did. I think the Neon Demon has a point about the power of beauty and how it corrupts Mm -hmm. uh, that can be read as like a misogynist screed if it weren't for the female screenwriters and cinematographers that like helped sort of like curb some of Refn's uh, yeah grosser instincts I think yeah I see I I picked up on all that I think with this one though it was just more a more interesting subject to tackle and they're both like femme violence I think like Mm -hmm. this film and that film both feel very femme without sacrificing any of like the sort of traditional genre payoffs where you know usually it's like a macho male fantasy I don't think there's any like male fantasy overriding double lover or neon demon uh, it's it's more like grotesque and effeminized. I mean, the way. only thing I've read is some people were critical of the aggressive brother and the way he has sex with her. It's like verging on rape and how that kind of propagates a rape culture. That That's the one criticism I've read of. It's very um, tricky thematic territory. Yeah, uh, it, it's definitely skirting the line. There is a kink that's like ravishment fantasy that I think that falls pretty closely in line with. And I do feel like she's in power of those sessions, especially by the time you get to the end and you realize like who's creating those scenarios and like right, who's right. like operating that line of thought and what it means with what's going on with, inside of her body. I think by the end, it does have a thematic purpose. And definitely, it's very uncomfortable in the moment, but not unpurposefully so. Like, I think it has a point. I, I agree with you. Yeah. Not to dismiss criticisms. Like, it's kind of a gross sexual uh, nightmare of a film in general, which I think, like, is to its advantage. It's kind of the point. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm glad you liked it. Like, I've been sort of... I know you showed it to some other people and they didn't care for it. What, yeah, what did I've... they say about it? Uh, just that it's, like, very derivative and, you know, They've it's been... seen this kind yeah, of thing Yeah, why before. would you watch this when you could watch Cronenberg and De Palma in their prime? But to me, like, it's a genre, not necessarily, like, a, a ripoff. And actually, one other filmmaker it kind of harkened back to for me was Gaspar Noe, who I'm not huge on... His new all, movie, really, I want to see. That looks really fun. It looks like We Are the Flesh, but like it's a dance party. But especially like the scene going inside yeah. the vagina. There's a, something almost... Enter the Void. Enter the Void at the end. But he does those kind of um, kind of shots to it. And it, it sort of reminded me of that as I will well. say the sex politics and the political implications of Gaspar Noe like, bothers me way more than anything that happens in this film. Um, I was saying more from a technical, not thematically, but I think technically there is some similarities, but this is more interesting than a lot of the work he's done. And I will say also Double Lover sort of gets on my good side early on too, where like it admits its influences. Like there's no way that you're going to not think De Palma. I think the movie is like admitting it's De Palma influences, especially the mirrored imagery pretty openly. Okay, I'll give it a pass there. But in one of the earliest psychiatry sessions with the more submissive twin, she says, I had a nightmare about you last night. Uh, you made these steel instruments for gynecological torture, which is pretty much the entire plot of Dead Ringers. Like, it's admitting it up front that it knows mm-hmm. what it's doing. Uh, it's not trying to hide the fact that it's like a pastiche version of like this nightmarish erotic thriller to me. Yeah. But yeah, no, I'm I'm really high on this movie. I... It would definitely be in my top movies of 2018. That's like so a huge far. relief to hear because I wasn't sure what you were gonna think about. No, it. no, I, I really, I, I really, really enjoyed this. This was a great recommendation. So yeah, I, I'm gonna start like I was telling you 
before we started taping, uh, I'm going to try to go back and watch some more of his movies. Probably going to watch Swimming Pool. Yeah, I heard this is like a huge deviation, not like his other films, which makes me want to check out. Yeah, I want to explore some more of his stuff. But yeah, this was great. If my mother had died, it would have been as much my responsibility as if I had poured the strychnine for her myself. For to the everlasting disgrace of my family name, I have by my cowardice and my weakness allowed the Barrys to establish a brutal and ignorant tyranny over our lives which has left my mother a broken woman and to squander and ruin a fine family fortune. My friends profess sympathy, but behind my back, I know I am despised, and quite justifiably so. And now it's time for our feature conversation. Uh, joining us for this, we have Cece Chapman. Hey! Cece is our official festival correspondent. That's my game. And she is here because we're talking about another film festival. Um, it's a brand new film festival at Britannia called Filmtopia. Uh, it was held in late July. And it seems to be their replacement for Filmorama, which is something they've done for a long time. Oh, really? Yeah, it just seems like Filmorama's dead. Oh. Um, uh, and that one, they bummer. used to program themselves, as opposed to like when French F- Film Fest and New Orleans Film Fest host screenings there. Like, this seems like Britannia's own film festival, you know? Yeah. And kind of like Filmorama, there was no real theme to the film festival. The tagline they had was like, movies good and plenty. Like the candy, I guess. It was kind of a, like a like a joke about the candy, I think. Like good and plenties. Yeah, because that has like an old-fashioned sound to it. Mm-hmm. And also they were just playing like a lot of movies throughout the week. And the theme was that they were good. Yeah, pretty uh. much. <laughs> uh, it was a lot of stuff that has trickled through Zeitgeist and Broad in the past like few months. And they just kind of gathered them all in one place. Because the Andre Talley one is currently at Zeitgeist. And I think a couple of the other like documentary type ones that they showed, uh, like the Cecil Beaton one, I think previously it had played at Zeitgeist. And I guess there was also a couple like running through lines too, where like they had a few documentaries about like artists. Mm-hmm. They had like a some like restaurant tours and fashion designers, photographers. That's true. I didn't think about that. Yeah, the documentaries about creative people was a large, like, thorough line. And it also coincided with Stanley Kubrick's 90th birthday, uh, if you were alive to see his 90th birthday. And they played uh, sort of, like, within the larger film festival, they had, like, a retrospective of his work as well, probably, like, five or six films. Kind of like in French Film Fest, they always pick one French director to do a retrospective within the festival. So this most recent one was Agnes Varda. The year before that was her husband. Jacques Demi Demi <laughs> yeah I blinked on his name for a second uh Jacques Demi so it, it seems like they always try and like pick one director to also like have a short brief retrospective of their career within the larger fest in total they played about 20 movies in a week and this is a single screen theater it's the oldest like operating single screen theater in the state uh which we've talked about here before a couple times it's like 100 years old so they have a, like a limited space on the like range of movies they can play from week to week and this is them like kind of cramming in as much as they can yeah. while still get affording a couple like two show times in case you miss one you know yeah because usually you know now a lot of these bigger 
production companies and distributors, you know, people like Disney uh, and Warner Brothers, they will require that you show their film, whatever they're putting out right then, for a certain number of, like, weeks. And so if they decide to pick up a Marvel movie, they can't show anything else for two, three weeks. So financially, it's a little difficult for them to, to really get in the variety that they feel is healthy and that, you know, obviously we enjoy. And they do a good job of like cramming in like midnight showings and oh yeah yeah like classic they're allowed, screenings. They're always allowed to like I guess a certain number of their primetime screenings have to be like whatever their big film that week is. But yeah, they always have a Wednesday and Sunday matinee that is a classic movie. They always have midnight movies on like Thursday through Sunday that are usually BYOB and they're usually in some kind of like genre. They'll either do like a horror film run or um, the films of like Wes Anderson or the films of. Miyazaki, um, which is always really fun that they manage to like, they mix up their program as much as they can. And you and I usually go only to the like Sunday morning screenings. We, we really like those because those are free for us as members of the New Orleans Film Society. So, you know, that's one of the many perks if you decide to join. And we made it for this festival too. They had a Sunday morning screening for Stanley Kubrick's The Killing. Yes. Uh, we... I don't think it was free for anyone because it was during the Film Fest actual part but we didn't mind paying because it was really good. I mean, we only got to see like four movies uh, between us over the film fest. And I think we prioritized first off, like the two Kubrick movies we had never seen before. Like the opportunity to see those on the big screen was kind of nice. And honestly, I'd never heard of the killing before the film fest posted. Them. No. Yeah. I, I'm not a, like a huge Kubrick head. Like I don't like read his Wikipedia page obsessively like I do with, you know, my favorites like Barry Jenkins and you know, Wes Anderson like John Waters uh so I I don't know his filmography very well so anytime I get a chance to see one of his movies it's always like a fun pleasant surprise for me and usually when you hear Kubrick's name you hear these like big budget productions that are like these really intensely planned out meticulous like machines like 2001 a space odyssey and you know uh the shining and Clockwork Orange, stuff like that. Really cold, calculated works that operate on this grand scale. Uh, the Killing is his first like professional level production with like a cast of like professional actors and stuff, and it's still him operating on this like small genre budget scale. It's from 1956, so it's very early in his career, and it's a noir heist picture set at a racetrack. Uh, so it's kind of like a noir precursor to like Logan Lucky. Uh, except with horses instead of race cars. Yeah, I would say that's accurate. And it's also the only Kubrick film I've ever seen that was in black and white. Um, Kubrick almost has this, like, Guinness Book of World Records, like, approach to, like, filmmaking to where, like, there always has to be, like, something, like, really unique about that specific film. Like, one of the films we saw later that day, Barry Lyndon, is well known to use only natural lighting. And uh, Space Odyssey, he had to, like, invent a bunch of new types of shots and it's just funny like there's always like something like really bombastic uh and exemplary about like each film but i feel like it is before he reached that stage in his career so it feels much more just like any normal movie ex except that it's exceptionally well made well he did return to black and white for um dr strangelove oh i see i haven't seen that one so there you go but that one also has a lot of other gimmicks like peter sellers plays multiple roles and the whole thing is like this really zany political satire and it has all these overlapping stories so it's not like a linear structure really the killing is like bare bones crime picture and honestly like i 
am drawn more to that kind of territory usually than like these big masterpieces where everything falls into place neatly. Uh, this is, you know, someone who's hungry to show off. Well, performing within a genre with very specific requirements and payoffs, you know, he's like imposing his style on something that's already like established with its own tropes. Yeah. And this movie does have like everything you would expect from a noir. It has like the uh, intense lighting. Uh, it has like guns stowed away in flower boxes and musicians' uh, cases, like a like, guitar case. Yeah. Uh, and they have you know dangerous, brutish like macho criminals and like even more dangerous dames. Uh, and there's this really over the top verbose uh, narration that runs throughout that feels very like set in like noir tropes. Yeah. The whole thing like kind of like reads like a like baseball commentary almost. They're like, and now 57 minutes to the heist. We're rounding out this last corner. We're, we're getting to it. Just like, okay. Like I loved that part. Like it felt, felt very meticulous. It felt very much, like if Wes Anderson did a heist movie, except Wes Anderson did do a heist movie when he did Bottle Rocket, so it's, it it has that kind of meticulous air to it. Yeah, and early on, it's very ridiculous that he keeps reminding you what time of day it is. You're like, oh, earlier that evening or the next Tuesday afternoon at seven fifteen p.m., where that time doesn't matter to us at all. Early, no, in the it's film. it's not like usually in a heist we want to know what's going on like during the actual heist, and then in that like aftermath where they show you like exactly what really happened. But telling us like four Tuesdays ahead of the heist that somebody is going to the post office like that doesn't seem very interesting. So it's kind of maddening at first, and you kind of are starting to get frustrated with it, and then it like starts becoming more and more brilliant. And even in those moments, I don't necessarily know that I'm paying attention to uh, all those pieces as they fit together. Like, I kind of just, like, trust that it all maps out. Because he'll, like, jump back in time to reshow people's roles in the uh, actual operation to, like, steal this money from this racetrack. You know, because there's, like, a fight that breaks out as a distraction. There's somebody who's there to hold up the cops. There's a cop who's in on it who helps, like, stow the money away. And I don't necessarily know that I'm, like, putting all those pieces together but the movie has that confidence of telling you like each time that everything happens and you just sort of like trust that it all maps out in a place where i'm sure you could like storyboard it uh just from the details they give you pretty easily yourself yeah but to be honest what really excites me about this picture is not necessarily like all that meticulous heist planning and operation it's the humor that he mixes in with like the brutality of it because mm-hmm. there's a lot of like really gross violence in this like cops and horses and bystanders are like you know, torn to bits by bullets so these people can steal this cash but then there's also this really like goofy humor where like pets like a parrot or a dog will like sort of muck up the proceedings and then you also have this like femme foil played by mary windsor the character's name is like sherry petty in the movie and she is petty she steals the movie like you know, more literally, she's, like, trying to steal the heist money from her husband, who it wasn't supposed to let her know that they were even stealing any money. Uh, so she tries to send her, like, boy toy that she's cheating on him with to, like, take it for her and, like, cut out all the other criminals who helped helped him plan it out. But she just, like, hurls all these insults to him that are, like, it's basically like her doing a drag routine in her lingerie. 
uh, just sort of like casually stealing the show from everybody, and it's fucking hilarious. It reminded me a lot of the performance that Betty Davis gave in that Errol Flynn uh, Queen Elizabeth movie, where she was Queen Elizabeth and he was like Marlowe or something. Like the Earl of Essex or something like that. Or yeah, is Earl of Ath- Essex? Maybe Sussex. One of those earls. And she's just sitting there, you know, with her like bald Queen Elizabeth head, eating grapes and like insulting his manhood. And I felt like, you know, Petty was very similar. Uh, she would just lounge around, eat bonbons, and like yell at her milk toast husband, and it was so delightful. Yeah, she's a little bit of a Peggy Bundy character in that way too. And I don't know, like early in the movie, you have all these like macho guys, like these cops and brutes and racetrack employees and bartenders, sort of like conspiring to steal this money, uh, and it's very macho. And the first woman we see is one of their girlfriends, sort of consoling this guy who just got out of jail, and she's like. Oh, you know, I don't. I'm not that pretty, and I don't think that much. So I'm just gonna let you do all the thinking for me. It's like she's a gorgeous young actress, so that part's wrong. But like, girl, like he's not that great. He just got out of jail. So I was a little worried. I wasn't gonna be able to latch on to the movie through any like sympathetic point of view. Uh, and then immediately after, that's when Cherry Petty shows up, uh, Mary Windsor in the role, and she just sort of like she's has all the, the confidence in the world. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, just lounging around in her underwear, drinking cocktails and just sort of, like, casually stealing the movie. But what did you think about this movie on the whole? Like, what was your reaction to it? I mean, I really loved it. Uh, like you said, it was very macho at the beginning. And I didn't, you know, obviously it's not, like, my thing. But I loved Petty. Um, and I loved that performance. Uh, and I did really like the narration uh, because it was, like, so meticulous. And I could see Alec Baldwin doing the narration. But no, this actually, is this bad that this might be my favorite Kubrick? I mean... I mean, I get it. Like, The Shining's really good. And, like, you know, 2001 Space Odyssey is, like, a masterpiece. But... There's something for, like, him having to work against a small budget and work Mm -hmm. with genre tropes. Whereas in other productions that he's like better known for he like has complete and total freedom yeah like i i kind of feel like well people were willing to give him a huge amount of money you know when he made some of these films and so like it's less impressive to me to see what he could do with like several million dollars than to see like what he could do with like you know like fifty thousand or whatever the small budget of this was i have no clue and it kind of reminds me of like uh well it's a little self-flagellating but like those dogom like Dogom 17 or whatever the name of that like a dogma the film challenge that, yeah, like, yeah. uh Lars von Trier and a bunch of those people like were really into where they would you know they could only use like certain types of film and certain types of lighting and they had to like keep it super cheap and theirs was for like an art like a pure trying to create pure art pure cinema uh whereas I feel like you know this was just more like they didn't have money it's like dogma 95 yeah, I knew, yeah. It was, I knew it was something like that with a number. But yeah, like that one, they were putting those restrictions on themselves to see like how little they could work with for like an artistic point. This is just because of, you know, economics. But I still kind of like seeing a director work under limitations just to see what they can do with it. It's like, it's why we watch shows like Chopped. Like, I know chefs from high-end restaurants can make amazing meals, but I want to see if they can make something amazing out of like dried shrimp, some like freeze-dried salmon roe nacho uh ranch like cool ranch doritos and arugula like i want to see if they can do something with that like 
And the funny thing is that, like, critics at the time felt the same way, kind of. Like, a lot of Kubrick movies that we're sort of used to accepting as, like, masterpieces now, like 2001 and The Shining and Barry Lyndon were all very divisive at the time and a lot of people kind of thought of him as like a overambitious hack I mean, yeah and it's kind of like how people say you know like sorry to bother you is 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 messy like yeah. his movies are super ambitious there's a lot of ideas there's a lot going on and i do find that part impressive but i just also like seeing what you can do with almost nothing and the killing had the opposite trajectory where at the time audiences didn't really care for it this is pretty late for a noir like i feel like noir movies kind of died like a couple years after this yeah yeah definitely by like you know the atomic age like noir is such an old thing of the dingy city like these poor people like just trying to get by but by the atomic age everything is scrubbed clean like we're looking more towards the stars so this movie was kind of a flop uh but critics really scored it high and said that the director had a lot of potential and it ended up making like a bunch of like best of the year lists which I kind of didn't know that they were making those in the 50s, to be honest. It seems like such a, like a blog age practice. Yeah, December, the month of best of lists. Yeah, and I don't know, it's just kind of funny how opposite the movie was. And I think critics have that same sort of like interest in the tension where like 2001, he could literally do whatever he wanted. And a lot of people saw it just as like pretentious, like masturbation, pretty much. I mean. I agree with both of those, <laughs> honestly. Um, yeah, no, I'll, I'll play for both teams on yeah. that one. And it's also funny to hear hear you say that this one reminds you of Wes Anderson because I thought the next one uh, we saw that same day, Barry Lyndon, uh, from 1975, that reminded me a lot of Wes Anderson. Really? Yeah, uh, especially the sort of like detached narration from that one continues. Yeah. Where it's a lot less machine-like and a lot less like they're calling a horse race and it's more the sort of like dry, sarcastic humor where they're like plainly stating things that happen and sort of making the main character look like a fool in the process. Yeah. Like there'll be like a scene where he like goes to talk to somebody and that person gets this like, are you fucking kidding me look on their face? And then the narration kicks in and -and so-and-so was not impressed. Right. Like, and tell. also the uh, there's these really comical zoom outs. We're we're watching a conflict, and the character, the camera just sort of pans out and shows like how insignificant they are in like this like larger frame that I found very humorous. There's a cut to intermission right after a character dies that I found really funny, and it has this sort of like uh, meticulous sort of Wes Anderson yeah, style to it. Yeah, very intellectual humor. Like, oh, what a delightful bonbon. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and this is a movie we've almost watched a couple times. We've almost mm-hmm. like borrowed it from the library, but we never got around to it. Cause it's like three hours long. Yeah, there's an intermission. It's that <laughs> long. And there's something like attractive to going to a long movie like that in the movie theater. Oh yeah, yeah. Because I can't, I can't pull out my phone. I'm trapped. I have to watch it all at once. Whereas if we watched it at home, we'd watch it for like an hour and twenty minutes and be like, oh my god, I need to go pee. And then we'd do the intermission. And then we play on our phones for a little while, and then we're out of the movie, and then we go back into the movie, and then we get another 45 minutes into it, and then we stop and we play on our phones. Like, I feel like anything that might be a little bit challenging for me, I need to see in a theater, because I completely lack self-control. I think also the humor of the film plays better in a theater setting with, like, a live crowd, too. Yeah, definitely, because, like... Kubrick's such a serious director. 
But then, like, he's funny. Like, he writes really funny stuff into his movies. Like, The Shining, sure, is a very sick sense of humor, but, like, there's yeah, jokes. Jack <laughs> there's Torrance always jokes. is a funny character in that movie. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of like Daniel Day-Lewis and, like, Fan Thread and... Uh, there will be blood. Yeah, like. yeah. He's so over the top and it's like menace that it's like kind of amusing. Yeah. Uh, Hal 9000 is another one where like the character is scary for sure, but like the way he like sort of coldly states things is also amusing as well. Yeah. And you know, this movie, Barry Lyndon, has that more grand scale, very meticulous, a lot of like dead center symmetry in the framing. Mm-hmm. So you might sort of looking at, at, at this like perfect confectionery that you can't like muss up the corners of but it's actually like a really goofy movie on top of it yeah it's it's a farce like this character played by ryan o'neill who is you know this beautiful sex god and he's just so beautiful but he's a fucking buffoon he is an idiot and he thinks that he's special. He thinks that he deserves great things, but he's never exceptional at anything in his life except like not getting killed at like a couple intervals. Yeah, it's a little bit like Forrest Gump, or like um, a little more favorably, uh, Peter Sellers in Being There, Chauncey Gardner, where it's like this sort of like blank slate idiot white man who's sort of like handsome looking enough to uh, sort of drift his way up the ladder in life. As long as he's a little willing to, like, exploit his opportunities as he goes along. Uh, he's a little bit less of an idiot savant as either of those characters. Like, he almost has this, like, sociopathic willingness to exploit other people once he actually gets a little bit of power. But he is, he does start the movie as this sort of, like, dumb young boy. Uh, and by the end, he's this sort of, like, powerful rich person who's like draining his family dry he's the villain he's it's it's exactly forrest gump except that he is obviously the villain instead of like tricking people into thinking that he's the hero but we all actually know that forrest gump is the villain (laughs) and as he grows up from like a boy to a man to like a wealthy monster he still has that blank expression on his face the whole time like Mm -hmm. it's not like he really changes that much only that he has like opportunity to be corrupted yeah we start with him sort of like fighting for his cousin's affections with this like soldier uh and then he gets ostracized for that and then he enlists in the army because he thinks that that will give him freedom and help him become a man and it's during the seven years war and that turns out to be a terrible idea because he has to go to war and kill people and almost be killed and the food sucks that's really like his like greatest like complaint is that the food's not good he's like (laughs) oh can't believe I'm almost getting killed just to not even eat good food. And then along the way, like, he's robbed. He's kidnapped. He's kidnapped and, like, held prisoner for years. So you almost could feel sympathy for him, but as soon as he has the power to do all those things to other people, he, like, greedily does it. Uh, And he becomes this sort of, like, tyrant in this home, believing this poor rich woman dry by pretending that he's in love with her. And I guess his cruelest sin is the way he treats her son from a previous marriage his name's lord boldington beats this poor child spanking him till he's like in his teenage years and way past when it's embarrassing to be spanked by a man who's not your dad um, i mean it's always embarrassing but then it like gets like really embarrassing and then uh, there's like several duels throughout the movie as well and he gladly enters into a duel with this poor kid too the kid challenges him to a duel, so it's not necessarily him that instigates it, but he accepts the challenge, and he puts him through that whole trial. And all the while just stealing all the money from him and his mom. 
Yeah, it's that kid's inheritance. Like, technically, like, the title can he can't be inherited by him. But until his wife dies, he can spend as much of her money as he wants, including his, like, stepson's inheritance. So he does. An attempt to make sure there is nothing left by the time his wife dies. And along with the duels that repeat the route, too, like, there's, like, repeating themes of, like, imposterism and theft, a lot of military stuff and fist fights, these sort of, like, macho bravado things. Uh, but mostly, like, as a whole, the piece has this sort of, like, pop art decadence to it. Remind me a little of, like, Marie Antoinette and uh, Orlando. Amadeus. Amadeus. And I think that's really what won me over, just, like, the beauty of the costuming mm-hmm. mixed with the sort of, like, cold humor where we, like, laugh at how absurd this man's, like, rise to power is. I really liked this one a lot. Yeah, I liked it. I did assume that this was going to be, like, visually one of the most beautiful films I had ever seen, just because that's how I always heard kind of people talk about it. And I was surprised at how, like, muddy the colors looked, even though this was a restoration, uh, and that there was, like, a bit of grain in the film. I know there's grain in the film just because they shot it in such low light conditions, uh, but I'm kind of surprised they didn't clean some of that up in the restoration. I'm not sure that we saw a restoration. It was definitely really? a digital project- projection, so... I thought it was the restoration. I'm not sure. And yeah, this movie was, like, filmed... It was the film in the 70s, too. Like, I don't like 70s film stock, for the most part. Like, I think it looks kind of bad. But I'm also a jerk, so... It's got kind of, like, a warm color to it. I thought it looked cold. Really? Yeah. Like, like yellows and oranges is what I was picking up on. Well, (laughs) maybe I need to get my eyes checked. And yeah, the, the natural lighting thing, that's usually what people fawn over with this movie, is, like, the fact that he had to, like develop these special lenses uh, based off of, like NASA technology to like capture all the light in these buildings a lot of candlelight dinners in this movie yeah a lot of characters like having conversations next to windows with the drapes open just conveniently just happened to stop by a window when they were walking so that we could see their faces yeah and that's something that we've seen more recently in movies like The Witch too where it's mm-hmm. usually like this creepy sort of like old-fashioned painting is like the kind of the vibe yeah uh, but in this movie it's a little more precious and a little prettier mm-hmm. and i don't know i was really won over by it i don't think i even really had a favorite between this one and the killing i thought they were both very good it seems like you were a lot higher on the killing i was i was i, I liked barry linden but yeah no i definitely still say i liked the killing better i mean just because also the the pace was a lot faster like i loved watching barry's rise to power but I didn't like the second half, like, once he had the power as much. Um, I thought it was okay, but it wasn't as fun as the first half, obviously, because it's not as fun watching somebody torture other people. Yeah, you shed any sympathy you might have gained from him in the first half. Yeah, he was just a, a hilarious buffoon in the first half, and then he became an asshole buffoon in the second half. Yeah, but I do sympathize with his wife a lot in the second half. The woman, he's, like, bleeding dry. She yeah. has this sort of, like, tortured, painful look in her eyes that I feel like sells really well. Yeah, no, she was really good in that role. But, you know, just like his actual wife, the actress wasn't given very much to do. Except looked upset. (laughs) Yeah, the power struggle is more between him and her son. Because even if he had died, you know, and predeceased her, she still wouldn't have access to her own fortune because then it would go to her son and heir. Um, so no matter what, there was never going to be a point in her life where she was going to have access to her own money unless she, you know, became a widow and stayed a widow while her son was a child. She could have done that, but she really thought she loved Barry. And I think part of the reason, too, that I like this, maybe even slightly more than some parts of The Killing, was that 
I just have like a sort of baseline appreciation of like costume dramas. It's true. Even like the worst, like blandest costume drama is like fine by me usually. And obviously this one's like a cut above than like some more bland ones I've seen. You know, this isn't like BBC theater. Uh, it's like this like really like over the top decadent money all over the screen kind of production. So I don't know. I was just sort of like won over by the basic pleasures of this. Whereas I don't watch as many noir films. Like I've, I've maybe seen a handful of like the classics. So uh, maybe I'm just more in tune with like the pleasures of, of Barry Lyndon than I am with the killing. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, I mean, I think I think they were both very, very good, and I rate them both very highly. Yeah. I just like The Killing a little bit more. Um, the only movie I saw at the festival that wasn't Kubrick-related <laughs> <laughs> was uh, Cold Water from 1994. Uh, this is a picture from uh, French filmmaker Olivier Assayas, and it's actually getting a Criterion digital restoration that's coming out, I think, in September. And I saw the digital restoration of that uh, at the festival Asayas is somebody I've appreciated but never heard of until his last two pictures which were the two Kristen Stewart dramas um, Personal Shopper and Clouds of Sils Maria I thought he was a young filmmaker and like those were like two of his like earliest movies but he's been making films since the 80s <laughs> and even Cold Water feels like the first film from somebody it feels like an early picture it's kind of cool that he keeps that freshness. Yeah, it's crazy. Like, it's this, like, sort of open, bleeding heart vibe in his movies where, like, all his, like, emotions are on his sleeve. He doesn't have any of that Kubrickian, like, coldness. And it's also, like, a kind of a deliberately messy, open-ended drama that he usually crafts where, like, the, there's no answers in the last scene or, like, there's, you're left with a question or, like, a haunting feeling, which feels like somebody young in their career, you know, fresh out of art school trying to, like impress you with like European cinema aesthetics but it's somebody who's been doing this for decades well, it turns out all those kids were just imitating him this whole time and he is dealing with teenagers in this one too so like mm-hmm. he is dealing with like youth culture in cold water so you know sort of like associate him with like rambunctious children <laughs> this is a movie about two teenagers and this like sort of Romeo and Juliet quest where they're both they're shoplifters they get in trouble in school all the time. They like ditch class to go smoke hash. And as a result, they're getting sent away to like boarding school. And I think the girl is maybe even going to like a mental institution. That's what it seemed like her parents were committing her. And they basically say, fuck that. We're going to run away and go to this like hippie commune that may or may not exist. Uh, they like take a chance on it still being there uh, out in like the French provinces outside of Paris. And I think this, like, teenage sensibility actually works better with the, like, emotional palette he usually plays with. In the Kristen Stewart movies, she's really good at doing that emotion where she's, like, doing all the work for the narrative because it's very slight, like, with her face and, like, with the devastation you, like, read from her body language. But, you know, she's somebody who's in, like, her mid to late 20s at this point where these kids are, like, still in high school and that, like, sort of, like, letting it all bleed... Uh, out for everyone to see and like emoting like over the top like feels really authentic to that time in someone's life yeah definitely i definitely felt you know that like love crazed like i'm gonna go mentally ill like i'm going to have a breakdown if i do not you know run away with this person like i seriously talked about like just running away from school and train hopping with someone Uh, we didn't we stuck it out but still (laughs) yeah and they go hitchhiking which is like even more dangerous in its own way 
And, you know, obviously there's like a tragedy to like the Romeo and Juliet archetype story. It uh, is, you know, the tragedy. Yeah. And the movie does work within that. But it also like pulls back the scope out of these like two kids, uh, these like two young lovers to show like how they're exemplifying of like a larger group at the time of the movie set in the early 70s. And the kids keep complaining like we're not the only ones like this. We just get we're the ones that get caught all the time. So we're the scapegoats. Anytime something is like vandalized or stolen, we're the ones that get blamed for it. And you don't really get the full scope of that until halfway through the movie. There's this large set piece at like this bonfire party, and you see all the kids are just like them. Yeah. They all start smashing and burning stuff. Do you remember I showed you a scene from Morphin Collar? Yeah, that bonfire. I mean, I watched all of Morphin Collar, and then you liked that one scene so much, we watched that scene again. But yeah, that, I was just about to say that that bonfire scene in Morphin Collar is... Yeah, it feels exactly like that, but like stretched out for like almost the entire second act of the film. Uh, so they pu- put a pause on these like two kids running away together to show this like larger version of like what early 70s rambunctious teenagers looked like and they're just like smashing furniture and throwing in the fire and they're playing rock records obnoxiously loud um that was the one part of the movie that felt a little weird to me was that it wasn't like set later in the 70s something about the energy of the film felt very like first wave punk but instead the kids are like smashing stuff to like ccr and bob dylan and janice joplin which feels a little less in line with what you normally expect with like teenage rebellion soundtracks but even like with me sort of wanting a more like punk rock soundtrack, I do have to admit that they play like the song Me and Bobby McGee a couple times, which feels so perfectly like on the nose for the themes of the movie about like getting like roped into this road trip for this like romantic tragedy that's not going to end up well just because someone is like charming enough to like convince you that it's worthwhile. Yeah, and I mean, all that music, even though, like, it seems kind of tame to us, that was the music of, like, the anti-war protests and anti-Vietnam protests. And, I mean, they had those protests in France, too. Like, France was going through its own set of upheaval at the time. Um, They were still trying to figure out their place in the world post-colonialism. And, you know, there was all this unrest, political, economic. And I feel like, you know, the kids took cues from the American Vietnam protests. Yeah, and it makes sense when they're, like, smoking hash and, like, making out it makes a little less sense when they're like pogoing around a fire and like smashing things like unless uh they're playing alice cooper on the soundtrack which alice cooper has this sort of like early punk feel to it so it almost feels like they're like reaching for the music that hasn't been made yet or something yeah but overall i i really do think this is like probably my favorite one out of the three i've seen from him wow Uh, you really liked some of the others yeah not well, really. you really like Kristen Stewart. Yeah, I think Kristen Stewart's been doing great work with him, but the movies just haven't been, like, hitting the mark, you know? Like, between K-Stew and Robert Pattinson, the Twilight kids are, like, doing really interesting artsy-fartsy stuff. But Pattinson had Good Time, which I thought was, like, a great film. Whereas, like, before that, I thought both of them were doing, like, great work in sort of, like, mediocre films, you know? Mm. And honestly, I think my, I was just, I think what I appreciated most about this was like sort of reorienting me with Asagas where I was like, oh, this is a filmmaker who's really going to hit the mark one day and I'm going to like find the movie that I love from him soon where I just didn't know that I was supposed to be looking backwards in time and like looking at his back catalog because I feel like there is one back there that I'm going to enjoy. Um, I keep hearing one about one called Demon Lover that's like about 
like a website and sex or something. Well, you do really love evil websites. That's like one of your like niche topics. And erotic thrillers. I'm, I'm totally into this. So yeah, yeah. A, a more Asias homework to do. And I also had more Kubrick homework to do because the final movie I saw at the festival was Film Worker, which is a documentary about Leon Vitale, who was an actor who worked on Barry Lyndon with Kubrick. This is a kid who grew up in that early 70s European, like the late 60s, early 70s, like psychedelic vibe in like England, when everyone's like listening to the Stones and doing drugs and stuff like that. And he came up through experimental theater as an actor. It's like a young kid around that time and saw 2001 A Space Odyssey and decided not, I want to be a famous stage actor, but I want to dedicate my life to Stanley Kubrick. And this movie interviews him about his decision to do that because what he does is he works really hard to get a bunch of like stage roles and like BBC bit parts so that he can land a role in Barry Lyndon, you know, fulfilling his dream of working with Kubrick. And he plays the oldest version of Lord Buldington in that movie. That's the Barry Lyndon stepson. Yeah. So he's the one who challenges Barry Lyndon to the duel. He's the one who's, you know, screaming at him for squandering his mother's wealth. And basically, you know, at whatever young age that was, like it seemed like he wasn't even 20 years old yet, he decided like, okay, I've fulfilled my life's goal. I've worked with Stanley Kubrick. I'm just going to do that for the rest of my life. And that's what he did. He dropped his like promising acting career and worked as this sort of like uncredited line producer on every other one of Kubrick's productions until Kubrick died and then continued to work with him as a sort of archivist uh, after he died. Usually he is billed as a personal assistant to Kubrick, which severely underestimates like his role in the films. Like he works as everything from like an editor to a casting director to an acting coach. He was a stand-in in a lot of the scenes, too, for, like, people to act against. Oh, uh, yeah, particularly in The Shining, he auditioned, like, hundreds and hundreds of kids to play Danny and then picked the shyest one. <laughs> it's the one that ended up in the movie and then, like, worked with him in every single scene. So anytime you see Danny acting in The Shining, he's working to, to Vitaly off-camera and they're, like, running their lines back and forth. And the movie shows a lot of back scene shots of him, like, running down the hallway next to Danny and, like, sort of, like, guiding his performance and helping shape the movie. So if you have, like, a lot of interest in Kubrick productions, like, Filmworker has a lot of background info on The Shining, Full Metal Jacket, and Barry Lyndon, and then... Um, Eyes Wide Shut. Eyes Wide Shut. Uh, those in particular, for sure. I appreciated it more coming from someone who doesn't worship at the altar of Kubrick and find his sort of, like directing style like bullyish he's like kind of a tyrant and a I perfectionist mean, kind of caused a couple people to have mental breakdowns <laughs> over the course of you know filming uh because he could be so tyrannical towards people and like would scream at them and scream at them and scream at them and tell them their performance wasn't good enough until they were you know literally in tears yeah and that's like his style is supposedly he's like making you do a take over and over again until there's no artifice and you're just sort of like automatically doing it and delivering the lines without any mystique. But that's also how you torture a person is you ask them questions, the same questions over and over again until like something in their brain breaks <laughs> and they're just delivering what you want them to deliver, <laughs> like using the same techniques. Yeah, and I feel like that is such an old style of filmmaking that I don't feel like people tolerate anymore because you're literally just abusing your coworkers instead of like, 
hiring someone who can act and deliver the lines the way you want them to. Yeah, it's a very auteur, like, filmmaking style, whereas, you know, now the filmmakers that I like and respect are the ones who are collaborators who are like, hey, let's all do a workshop for two weeks before we start filming just to work on these, like, things. And then by the time they actually get to filming, they only need to do, like, a handful of takes. Yeah, like Greta Gerwig or Mike Mills who will, like, you know, hold enough auditions and, like, prep time to like establish like what they want so that you can deliver it while you're actually filming and get the movie in on a certain like budget uh where like kubrick is wasting like miles and miles of like celluloid filming all these takes and like breaking you down and wasting everyone's time and money and going over budget because he's such like a genius um (laughs) and i think when i reviewed film worker that's mostly what i talked about is like how it's like an anti-altier theory movie because all you hear about is how this like perfectionist guided this whole production and what you don't see is like the hundreds of collaborators that they're abusing <laughs> in the background to get yeah. this like work out of them and i feel like the person who made the documentary like saw that really quickly because he went to leon vitale so that he could do like documentaries about kubrick and then he realized oh kubrick isn't the one that needs a documentary made about him like this guy does like this is somebody that isn't getting the credit we've given kubrick plenty of credit at this point let's look at who enabled kubrick to be a genius and what you see is like because he dedicated so much of his like time and energy to kubrick and basically running 24 7 trying to like please this impossible person uh he had no time to like eat or sleep so he's like all gaunt and like basically like losing himself mentally uh, he had no time to like really raise his own children, uh, so th- they were kind of a stranger to him. And at this point, he has no money because he's like this like sort of personal assistant who lost his like master. You know, he's like mm. an Igor without a Doctor Frankenstein. Uh, and the film companies that like own Kubrick's stuff don't really care for his input anymore either. Uh, so that he basically has nothing, and his like kids are like keeping him alive. But he still works, like, making sure that prints are delivered the way they're supposed to, and that... Yeah, he works on the remastering projects. Anytime they want to remaster something, he'll, like, pull the color keys and tell them, like, exactly, like, how they need to mix stuff. Yeah, and he's basically doing a lot of that work, like, for free. Yeah. He's just not getting any credit as, basically, I, would have, I think he deserves the, at least the credit as, like, a producer, yeah. He actually is, like, doing a lot of the work that a regular, like, producer would do. When he also was, like, there day by day, he is, like, the Kubrick, like, archivist or, like, biographer because he knows what Kubrick wanted and, like, how things were actually shot. Like, he could probably tell you offhand, you know, what type lighting rig they used for, like, a specific scene, like, just because he was there and knew all that stuff. Like, he is, like, the font of information for this particular director but what the movie shows is when they do like the giant Kubrick retrospective recently where they like they have this like museum set up of like all his artifacts and sort of celebrating his life's work. Like Vitaly was not included on any of that, wasn't invited to the opening for it, but still in his free time has been giving tours to like schools and kids and like film classes and stuff, like providing all this background context because he was there and lived it for free because he like Yeah. And there's something kind of like sweet about it because he's still really happy about his life's work and he feels like he did accomplish what he wanted yeah he helped create all those beautiful things like even though he might not have been credited it doesn't matter like i don't know who built the cathedral of notre dame in paris nobody does they were nameless doesn't make the cathedral less gorgeous and doesn't make you know 
those who did partake in its like building feel less accomplished it's just that they will never get the credit like they're dead you know in the history and that's usually how we talk about movies too we always talk about one person mm-hmm. um even just now like oh yeah that mike mills movie or that greta gerwig movie it's like oh there's like hundreds of other people like helping them achieve their goals yeah. they're a little more open about that than someone like kubrick who you know the way we talk about it is like oh, it's one person who made every decision but it's also like sad even though that guy like dedicated his life yeah you, you see him sort of like a wreck and like forgotten by time the movie's obviously like somewhat of a corrective of that and i think it ends with a little epilogue saying like things have gotten better since they stopped filming but it's still really depressing yeah i mean like he's a discarded bit of technology he's like a fax machine or something we don't need him anymore but i guess we should commend him for his service and yeah it's like interesting to have that like physical manifestation of like how collaborators are lost in like the auteur theory Mm -hmm. Uh, just because it's really convenient to talk about movies that way like yeah i mean there's already enough directors who's like i need to be like learn about their lives so i can understand the context that their films are made in and now i need to learn like who all their collaborators were in the context of their lives so that i can understand their role in the movie better like that's like too much man also, like a lot of these documentaries, this was like really cheaply done. Mm-hmm. So like you'll watch a documentary on like a casting director or some forgotten like line producer or cinematographer. And usually these things are like basically like look like DVD extras. Yeah. And this one has that. Like it's like the sickly digital like sort of backroom interviews. There's not a lot of like female commentators for like almost the first two thirds of it. Which I think also plays into like Kubrick's legacy as well. Yeah. <laughs> There's no real interview footage with Kubrick either, which might might be like a creative choice, but it does cut into this film's like entertainment value too. Yeah, I mean also his family, his estate owns that footage. Like this guy can tell the stories about Kubrick he wants, but the second they wanna like actually use like archival footage of Kubrick or a photo of Kubrick, they have to ask his family. And if his family's like we don't need this guy. He's not one of us. He's just some outsider who like thinks he knows dad better. He's like a secretary. Yeah. I think that this one cuts into its potential for like, you know, high art in that way. Mm-hmm. The way a lot of these like feel like sort of like supplementary material instead of like an actual film. But I also think that like how shoddily put together it is would also like drive Stanley Kubrick fucking insane. <laughs> and I think that there's a like kind of like a poetic justice to that as well. Because you watch like Kubrick like basically run this man into the ground for like no thanks and uh it's just kind of like oddly justifying to like see this like imperfect project that is supposed to like inform his work yeah like for all the true kubrick fans who are like ah his cinematography is so beautiful uh his editing is sublime and then in order to truly know kubrick they have to watch this documentary as like a set like an end like cap on his life and they're like oh but it looks so ugly uh as a true kubrick fan i cannot stand this and kind of like the killing like it's just kind of nice to see kubrick like taken down a peg and made more human by limitations like that i don't know i think this movie's interesting i don't think it's essential for anybody unless you are like the biggest stanley kubrick head and like need to like understand like how those movies got made and like how there are other people behind the camera that you don't normally see exalted the way that he is uh but i still found it very interesting and you know it's always good to like see workers credited for their labor <laughs> yeah. for being overlooked for so long definitely overall like i think i do have a larger appreciation of kubrick after this festival like 
those three movies I feel a little warmer to than a lot of the stuff I've seen. At yeah, home. I definitely feel like his movies are well worth a watch on big screens. He is one of those directors where you lose something watching it at home. I'm really glad Kubrick died before the age of Netflix releases because it would have made him really sad to like work on these films for years and like drive all these people into the ground and then it just gets released on people's TVs. Yeah, I'm sure like even the slightest color correction or like aspect ratio change to like adapt it to a TV would like drive him insane. Well, and then he'd want to send out instructions to everybody like according to the make and model of their TV to like calibrate it correctly. So it looks at its best and like, we don't have our TV set up like right. Like we don't have our color calibrated at all because we don't own that DVD. You need to do that. And it seems like a lot of work. So I didn't bother. And that's the kind of work Vitaly was doing. Like he was actually like approving all these like, you know, DVD jackets and aspect ratio changes and, you know, making sure the prints actually looked good. So he was preserving the legacy and like the pure art form. But, like, at what cost? He's, like, basically a martyr for cinema. Again, going back to, you know, Notre Dame or something. Sure, we have this beautiful thing, but it was at a great human cost. So much of the beautiful, opulent things in the world came at a terrible human cost. And it's kind of upsetting, like, when you realize that, that it's really difficult to make beautiful things without hurting other people. Especially, you know, throughout history, through, you know history of colonialism and slavery and the ravaging of goods and resources from other places and i feel like we still are definitely doing that all over the place but like even on a human scale like we're doing it to each other like we're like i need this film to be perfect and i will ruin your life to do it yeah i was thinking a lot about stalker like uh the way Mm -hmm. tarkovsky like basically exposed people to all kinds of like radiation and stuff and Uh, chemicals they they waded through (laughs) Uh, extremely polluted water. Several people from that film have died of cancer in the years following, uh, like in a much higher rate than like average. Like the stuff that looked like snow was not snow; it was like ash and like sheets of like dried up chemicals coming off like smokestacks around them. They were in a poisoned place. And I feel like thirty years ago, people would be more willing to say things like, "But it was worth it for that perfect piece of art." But now we're like, fuck that. Like, you have to take care of your workers and you're, like, trusting all these collaborators. I mean, I can I can appreciate it and say, yes, that was beautiful, but fuck you for making it. Yeah. Like, how much more beauty do we need the world if it's going to come at that cost? And, you know, it's nice to see someone taking down a peg for that, yeah. too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you're going to do it, you know, you have to be open to being criticized for doing it. And obviously I didn't fall as in love with Kubrick as I should have or as I could have this festival because they had a free screening of Eyes Wide Shut directly after Filmworker and I decided it wasn't worth staying awake for it and went home because <laughs> it would have ended like after midnight um, on a weekday. But um, overall, I, I enjoyed this festival. Like, I only saw four movies, but I am glad that they're like keeping the Filmorama vibes alive with this whole new like reinvigorated version of what they used to do yeah no and there was a few films that i wasn't really interested based on like the titles and synopses that i read in the program but then when i saw the trailers i am really interested in seeing them it's just that obviously i had a limited amount of time that i could go to this festival i could really only go on the weekends and a couple of the films that i later thought were more interesting after seeing the trailers were things 
that showed during the week. So it pretty much just like sold me on a couple more things because I don't think I would have looked up some of those documentaries otherwise that they showed. So I think I might go back now and watch like the Cecil Beaton one that they did and the Andrew Ta Andre Tolley one, um, which I was interested in the Andre Tolley one, but like I don't necessarily have to see that on the big screen. Yeah, like um, Filmworker, I could have watched on home for the full effect as a DVD as well. extra. Yeah, for sure. But you know, Barry Lyndon and the, and the Killing felt like. And even Cold Water felt like stuff that should be seen big and loud just yeah. for the full experience. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, next time we do this, it'll be for the New Orleans Film Fest, Woo! which is usually like an all-out extravaganza. Yeah, no, that's like sometimes we have to take off work just to make it to all the screenings <laughs> that we are entitled to as Film Fest like supporters. Do you think you'll go back to Filmtopia next year? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I look forward to it. I want to see how it grows. Um, I want to see if they reach out and make any partnerships with anyone else in town for the, for this one, or if they continue doing it independently. I'm kind of interested to see how it evolves. Yeah, me too. And I probably will go see more than four movies next year, too, to be honest. Whoa. It's like dipping my toe in the water this time. Yeah, well, we kind of also messed up, too, because we didn't realize we could use uh, our movie pass for it. So movie pass will not exist this time next year, <laughs> which is a, a, a true shame. But... I mean, we're also recording this kind of early. It's possible MoviePass won't exist by the time we post this, uh, <laughs> this conversation. Rest in peace, MoviePass, or long live MoviePass, depending on how that works out before we get to post this. I mean, you're allowed to say both. MoviePass is dead, long live MoviePass. <laughs> exactly. Bye, everybody. Bye.